It's the dawn of a new era for Superman. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are? Who you are, or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. This episode is going to cover a book that came out on October 16th, 1986, and that is The Adventures of Superman, number 424. This is actually one of those books that I remember buying probably because it's a pretty important book, even if it's not one that's actually particularly valuable. Adventures of Superman number 424 marked the first issue of a new title for Superman and was one of the first regular books of the post-crisis era. Wait, you say, it's 424. How can it be a first issue? Well, that's because issue 423 of the title had simply been Superman, the title that the Man of Steel had been headlining for about 48 years. But with the revamp that came after Crisis on Infinite Earths, courtesy of John Byrne, DC decided to renumber the Superman title, and instead of wiping out all of the numbering on the original book like they did it a few years ago with the New 52, they changed the title to The Adventures of Superman, a title that it would have until issue number 649 in 2005, before it became Superman again after Infinite Crisis. And for more on this issue and this entire era of Superman, I highly recommend that you run. Do not walk, run, and listen to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which is an in-depth look at the Superman books of the late 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. It's hosted by my good friend Michael Bailey and his partner in crime, Jeffrey Taylor. Now, the reason that I remember buying this comic has nothing to do with DC's continuity and absolutely nothing to do with the Crisis on Infinite Earths or the creative team shifts of the Burn era. Because in 1986, I had no recollection of Crisis. I may have seen a house ad for it in a comic that I purchased. As, and as I detailed in my comics prehistory blog post, I vaguely remember my friend Chris owning an issue of the series. Plus, at some point, I do remember seeing the cover of issue number 7, either as a poster or as a back issue on a wall or in a display case, because the cover of Crisis number 7 is a very tough cover to forget. No, I was going in completely blind here, and I happened to be at the comic book store one day in mid to late October of 86, probably while I was out with my dad helping him run errands in town, something that I used to do all the time. I'm not sure that I picked this up the day it came out, but the Saturday following its release was Game 1 of the 86 World Series, where the Mets lost one to nothing to the Red Sox, and my parents had a few people over that night to watch the game, and 
course, I went to bed early because I had a bedtime. Um, but anyway, uh, so we may have been picking out, up things like for food for the party or whatever that my parents are having to have people over to watch the game. So maybe that's why I remember buying this. Honestly, as good as my memory is, it's hard to remember those details because I have a lot of non-specific memories of going along with my dad as we went to one of several regular places like the bakery, the stationery store, the hardware store, the bagel place, the video store, the AMP, Wallbaums. And when you really think about it, that's what growing up in the suburbs is like. You know, I mean, it's quite possibly the most unromantically bland view of a person's childhood that you can get. I mean, there's no drama involved. It's not like my dad was bringing me along as he shook down every local business owner for hush money or anything. And I'm not the character in Springsteen's My Hometown. I was eight years old and running with the dime in my hand. The bus stop to pick up a paper for my old man Sit on his lap that big old beaut steer as we drove through town Tassel my hair Say something Good look around This is your hometown This is your I'm pretty sure my dad never said that to me. He probably said, stay in the car, I'm going to go run in and run out. In fact, I'm definitely sure he said, stay in the car, I'm going to go run in and run out. That's basically what, what it was. And then I fluttered around with the radio. Anyway, we're in mid-October of 86... And in mid-October of 86, he took me to the comic store, much like he had said for a few years prior with the miniseries of Superman The Secret Years, my dad noticed the cover to Adventures number 424 and pointed it out. I, like I said, had no idea what premier issue The Adventures Begin meant, and I had never seen the cover of Superman number 14, which is by Fred Ray and shows a similar pose, which is Superman standing with his arms stretched out as a bald eagle flies toward him. In the Superman number 14 cover, he's standing in front of a shield of stars and stripes, which does look a little bit like Captain America's old shield, but it's actually a representation of a shield of the on the great seal of the United States, behind which are tanks and planes. That issue came out about a month before Pearl Harbor, so the war was going on, and even though the United States wasn't formally involved, there was certainly a portion of the population that wanted us to go and fight. The Adventures of Superman number 424 cover is by Jerry Ordway, and it shows the Man of Steel standing on a hill with a city in the background. I suppose it's Metropolis, because, well, Superman. Although there are two buildings in the front of that skyline that resemble the Twin Towers. Either way, this cover is gorgeous. I actually have this cover on a folder that I bought at Target a number of years ago. In fact, having seen this and the cover to Superman Volume 2 number 1, there are times where I wish that this that the other title had a cover just as awesome as this. Yes, I know that the true beginning of the post-crisis Superman was Man of Steel number one, and I actually once owned the special cover with just the shirt rip, but the image of Metallo attacking Superman with the headline, It's Your First Issue Superman, It Could Be Your Last, doesn't scream first issue to me the way that this one does. And Nordway just draws such a classic-looking Superman, one that seems to be a mix of the old and the new of the character, 
part Kurt Swan, part John Byrne. His, in my mind, is second to Dan Jurgens in my list of favorite Superman artists. But I know what the big question is, and I know what you're thinking. Does the interior art hold up as well as the cover? Let's find out. Our title is Man O' War, and the creative team is as follows. Marv Wolfman, writer, penciler, Jerry Ordway, inker, Mike Macklin, letterer, John Costanza, colorist, Tom Zico, editor, Handy Helfer, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the cover price, 75 cents, a dollar in Canada, and Andy Leyland was pedaling his bicycle to get to the newsagent to pay 40p, which means that if he found this today in a 50p bin, he'd actually be paying a markup, as opposed to me who got my new copy of this in a 50 cent bin and saved one third off the cover price. I hope Professor Allen is smiling. I did math. We open in a hospital room where the Lanes, Lois, Lucy, and Sam are sitting around the hospital bed of family matriarch Eleanor, who is very sick and only getting worse. We get a hint that Sam and Lois aren't getting along very well, and there is a reference to Man of Steel number 5, which is the issue of that series where Lucy was blind and Bizarro's death helped her see again. We then switch to a meeting room where a group of men are discussing some sort of plans that suggest they are up to no good. One of them talks about how no country controls his people and then storms out with the other guys griping about how the stinking Arabs own the world. The guy who left leaves the building, presses a button on a remote control, and a robot appears, searches for life forms, and destroys the building. At the Daily Planet, Clark has a meet-cute with Cat Grant, the paper's newest gossip columnist, who Perry is proud to have hired because she will bring in much-needed readership. Lois, however, is not so happy, especially considering that she's under a lot of personal stress because of what's going on with her mother. Cat and Clark, who had gone out to lunch together, head to the rubble of the building destroyed a few pages ago, and we spot two things. One... A few people in the rubble who are still alive, and a note, and two, a note that says the Freedom League takes full responsibility for the action against the imperialist warmongers for their invasion. Clark can't change into Superman because there are too many people around, but he does alert the police to people who are trapped, and then makes a mental note about how there were grappling hook marks in the stone of the building, which means that something external caused the building's explosion. As they drive away, City Hall is targeted, and the police begin fighting a huge robotic worm, and the Freedom League takes responsibility yet again. Cat and Clark head to a building in Suicide Slum to follow up on a lead. Cat flirts with Clark, and they are greeted at the door by scientist Emil Hamilton, who is holed up in a rat hole as a way to hide out from the government, who he believes is out to discredit him. He shows the two a magnetic shield that can protect anyone inside of it from even laser blasts, which he demonstrates on Clark. As Hamilton explains to Cat why the government hates him, Clark hears a noise from City Hall and then takes off, leaving Cat to wonder where he went. Superman flies across the city and begins fighting the robot, which isn't so much a robot as it is a vehicle piloted by a team of men and women in black and white suits. The worm seems to defeat Superman and begins to move away, although he's not down for the count, as he punches up above the rubble and helps find a person who is trapped. Meanwhile, Lois is still dealing with her mother's health and her sister who is upset and as she leaves the daily planet she's basically abducted by lex luther's limo driver and is brought to him superman heads over to police headquarters and gets some background from inspector bill henderson on the freedom league who we learn are terrorists from the nation of quarak which is for those in the dc know is a fictional country in the middle east he flies out the window and is attacked by one 
by not one, not two, but three mechanical monstrosities that eventually inform one huge robot, kind of like an evil version of Voltron or something, and he gets ready to fight them. Meanwhile, Lois meets with Lex and he expresses his sympathy for her mother's health and makes her an offer. He has a serum that can save her mother's life. A serum she'll have to take once a month, but it works. In return, he basically wants to know her to know that his feelings for her are real. Oh, and he wants to have dinner with her at least once. She leaves and Lex tells a woman named Leela that Lois is essentially lost because he actually could cure her mother. But the many doses over time will basically put Lois in debt for much, much longer. And were to be continued. So I have to say that as much as I love this cover, this is an issue that I don't think I've actually read too many times. I know that I read it back in the day, but compared to the number of times I read both of the comics I've already covered in the show, I read this only a few. Looking at it now, I think the reason for that is twofold. First, G.I. Joe and the Transformers were the huge hot toys in my life. Second, this issue is incredibly dense. I'm a huge fan of Marv Wolfman. I've been a fan of Marv Wolfman for years, mainly due to his Teen Titans work, and I actually like this issue more than I did 30 years ago. Actually, that's not the best way to put it, because I didn't actually hate this issue 30 years ago. I guess I didn't figure it was worth multiple rereads. And if you compare the storytelling across these three issues, you can see why. Larry Hama layers things in about it in G.I. Joe, but does it in a way that a younger audience can understand, yet also feels that they're reading something smarter than just disposable crap. The G.I. Joe and the Transformers issues really don't have much of a story. This is basically the comic book version of you taking all your toys out of the closet and having them interact. But here we have a lot of a foundation being laid for future stories and characters, as well as conflict being spelled out that isn't quite clear, but there are robots that are very Transformer-like. Wolfman could, would help usher in the post-crisis era, but would only stick around for about 12 issues of Adventures of Superman before leaving. I know that back toward the beginning of SCTC, Mike and Jeffrey interviewed him about his run, and if you want to track down that episode, I'd listen to it. You'll probably get some information as to why he left. I know that right around this time in the Titans, he was starting to hit a very tough period, where he claims to have been hit with a, quite a bit of writer's block, and was behind on some of his other books. And he does have at least three books on the stands, including Teen Titans Spotlight. Plus, he had recently moved to California. I think he'd just gotten divorced. And he had also been having some issues with DC's higher-ups, which led him to losing editorial positions he had held. This is right before all of what was hap that was happening, and here, at least, he is telling a pretty solid story. So, And he gives us a cliffhanger for the next issue. In fact, I've never read the issue after this. When I was a solid fan of the character in the 90s, tracking down this and the issue after it, because I also had issues 27, 427 and 428, was on my to-do list, but I think it fell on the wayside for reasons. Anyway, here's what we have. The introduction of Emil Hamilton, who becomes a really important character throughout this era of Superman. Here, he's the scientist in hiding from what seems to be a government conspiracy. I like how he demonstrates his magnetic shield on Clark not knowing that he's Superman because it gives the audience a moment to chuckle at the dramatic irony. We get Cat Grant, whose first appearance was, I believe, in this issue, and she's presented as this overly flirty, pardon the phrase, sex kitten sort of character, which definitely puts her as a foil to Lois Lane. Although I like how Marvel Wolfman sets this foil up more of as a professional conflict between two journalists than not, say, the classic Lois Lana, we both love Clark slash Superman competition. In fact, 
With their meet-cute and subsequent lunch date, Wolfman leads us into suggesting that, well, it's going to be more like Superman comics of old, but then he, he zigs a little. He has Lois more preoccupied with work and family and not with any romantic tension with Clark, mainly because at this point, I don't think she considered Clark romantically at all. In fact, if I remember correctly, John Byrne had her be pretty horrible to Clark in the early days. Wolfman doesn't seem to do that. He does soften Lois a bit, and in my opinion at least, makes her more three-dimensional. The scene in Perry's office where they're all introduced to Cat is very well done. After Cat and Clark leave, Lois questions Perry's judgment about hiring Cat. Perry cites business as a reason, but does bring up her family because he probably assumes that her sniping at him about Cat is a manifestation of her current stress about her mother's illness. He offers to lighten Lois's workload, and Lois responds, and give it to someone like Kathy Grant? No, no way. I don't need time off. I'll be fine, just fine. We then cut to the A story again with Cat and Clark going across the rubble. But those few sentences really do a lot to make a character like Lois seem realistic. Byrne has often been criticized for making her, well, part of my French, bit, bit of a ball-busting bitch. And from what I've read of his run, he he does that. Lois is a type A woman here, but she's a type A woman who seems to have convinced herself that she needs to constantly push herself in order to succeed. And professional women who were in positions that were higher than average secretarial or administrative positions were becoming increasingly common through the 1980s. But it's not like women had it easy in the workplace. And I'll say that women still don't have it as easy as men do in the workplace. But I will say that being married to someone who's driven in her career, this, this scene is done incredibly realistically. How Lois does means a lot to her. And she obviously knows how hard she has worked her way up to the position she is in. Here... She's reacting. It's a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction, but she's reacting to the two stressors in her life. The first is the situation with her family. Her mother is extremely ill, and now she has to deal with just not her illness, but all the tension between the other people in her family who don't always get along with one another. Then, she's got Cat Grant, who's threatening her because, well... Because Kat's also successful, and she's sexy, and while this may sound a bit like Lois has a sense of entitlement, she's a woman who's gotten... Kat's a woman who's got where she was in almost a tawdry fashion, at least according to Lois. Lois is a news reporter. She's interviewed heads of state. Kat Grant's one step up from a sleazy tabloid journalist. I can imagine that this is this way someone like a Bob Woodward or Mike Wallace would look at Harvey Levin. And at the same time, though... Lois obviously feels threatened and is marking her territory a little, and Perry completely see th sees through it. And mind you, all of what I just said, that is six panels of this comic. Six panels. That's how dense this story is. But like I also said, it does a good job of characterization for someone we're very familiar with. And as for Cat Grant, we're not familiar with her at all, and she's kind of introduced her as a stereotype, yeah. But Wolfman does a good job of not revealing everything about her. He just makes us interested enough to want to know more about her and see if any of this obvious romantic tension between her and Clark come to fruition. Then again, I did like the fact that in the post-crisis Superman books, the relationship between Lois and Clark was not established right away as romantic. I mean, they weren't dating right away. She wasn't pursuing Superman. It was actually pretty cold in places. Now, as for the main story, which involves terrorists from Korak, 
attacking various buildings with machines. There's some elements here that remind me of those late Bronze Age issues I'd read when there was something like this, except it was piloted or had been created by Lex Luthor and he was used to specifically target Superman. Here, Kowaraki terrorists have gotten their hands on some technology, which was not unrealistic in the DC Universe, and they're using it to carry out specific acts of terror without considering Superman. He just happens to be here. It looks like at the end of it, the machines are targeting Superman because he's now in their way. And we're provided with a great hit cliffhanger in the form of a super robot that is attacking him in front of a movie theater marquee that is advertising, Stallone is Cobra. Also, Hannah and her sisters. Now, I realize that this horribly dates the issue, but come on, it's Stallone in Cobra. Society is breeding a new kind of criminal. It's also breeding a new kind of cop. Meet Cobra. He does the job nobody wants. Did you use unnecessary deadly force? I used everything I had. Do you know you have an attitude problem? Yeah, but it's just a little one. You think you would recognize me if you saw him again? The tall one? Yeah. The one that wants to kill you. Do what you have to do to get a lead on this maniac. And if I find him? Do what you do best. to say that a lot of what makes this issue great is Jerry Ordway's art. Wolfman packs a huge amount of script into 22 pages and Ordway does a great job of accommodating and illustrating that script. His faces are dynamic, his action is dynamic, and he makes all the supporting cast moments seem something to pour over rather than say skim through or skip over so you can get to Superman fighting bad guys. Then again, we don't see Superman for 12 pages. That's right. There's a huge amount of stuff that goes on, from Lois's mom being sick to the introduction of Cat to the first terrorist attack to them meeting Emil Hamilton. It's not until Clark, in classic superhero fashion, hears something that he hears something. He changes into Superman, and what we get is this: the only splash page of the entire issue. Although there's an inset panel of Cat wondering where Clark went, so it's not a total splash page, but. It's Superman flying through Metropolis, scanning the streets for trouble he's hearing. It's a gorgeous shot that shows him with one hand at his side, the other outstretched, looking down and assessing the situation before, in the next panel, going right at, going right at the worm-like robot vehicle. Orway's action is fluid and dynamic, and I love every moment of this fight, even though it's not with a major member of his rogues gallery. The lowest Lex stuff is something I'm both familiar with and not familiar with as a reader. I know that there was a relationship there at some point in the past, and this Lex is pursuing her as a jilted ex is... No, it's not creepy at all. But 
I do like the very Machiavellian way he handles her, making her feel slightly more comfortable around him and allowing her to still hate him in a sense so that he can basically gain the upper hand. He even says at one point that what he is doing requires a softer touch, which definitely is more sinister than, say, a maniacal supervillain. So overall, it's really solid. I don't know how well this is remembered as far as the post-crisis is concerned. I always get the feeling that these first couple of years of the era were most remembered for Burns' run of the main Superman title, especially since Action became a team-up book. And this, well, this was stuff that happened in it, but like I said, I wonder if I wonder if Adventures of Superman for a time was the Jan Brady of the books, you know? It's widely available, though, and uh, it's not hard to track this down. I think you can get it on Comixology. It's been in, reprinted in trade in the Man of, Superman the Man of Steel Volume 2, and I think you can find it out there. Um, in fact, that whole trade's on Comixology if you want to get it digitally. So I, w- I, would, I would check it out. Um, and that'll conclude my coverage, but that's not all for the issue. I actually, like I said, I have a physical copy of this comic, and so instead of reading it out of the trade or reading it digitally, um, I have the ads, uh, and I'm going to talk about those ads <laughs> right now. Now, some of the ads are the same because I'm seeing the same M&M's ad, uh, the same. Now, there's a different Sogmaster ad, which is the... Captain Crunch in prison saying, Get scrambling, kids, I need your help. And there's a word scramble. Oh, it can't be that evil Seesemgort, Sogmaster, has captured Panak Hurk. That's Klingon for Captain Crunch, I believe. Now, shut behind an Orod, a door, locked with an Eki key, our hero is trapped somewhere in Dasnagel. Is that like an ancient Norwegian land or something like that? That sounds like it. Can you help free the captain? Box the captain crunch cereal. Have exciting games, clues, and the secret phone numbers to tell you how. If you do free him, you could win a share of $1 million. But hurry, or Captain Crunch and his nurture rope crunch power may be finished. And there's, a, there's the Sogmaster at the bottom saying, You'll never free Captain Crunch. And a Soggy saying, Gush, it's Captain Crunch cereal. Because, you know, Captain Crunch doesn't get soggy. I don't know. I've never had Captain Crunch. There is uh, a house ad for Superman. Uh, at last, the greatest hero in comics by the greatest talents in comics. And it's the covers of the first three issues of the post-crisis era for each of the main titles. Wolf, uh, Bernard Giordano on action, Wolfman and Ordway on adventures, Burn and Austin on Superman, and Superman's, uh, John Byrne Superman's flying them and holding holding up two of them. It's a really beautifully, beautifully done ad. There's the uh, same laser tag ad from last time. A Westfield Company subscription service ad. I always like the little drawing here, the little house... Perhaps that's where the comics are coming from or coming to. It's, it's very quaint. Then in the middle, and this is something, I remember this, and I never thought to get it. There's a sweepstakes. Rarer than Kryptonite, the only way to get the one-volume Man of Steel Special Edition is to win it. Fill out the postcard in the back of this book, and the postcard says, Attention Superman fans, DC Comics wants to say thank you 
for your tremendous support of our new Superman projects. That's why we're offering you this one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to win a special trade paperback volume of the Complete Man of Steel miniseries. This is a very limited edition containing all six issues of the series. It will not be available for sale and cannot be obtained anywhere else. We'll be drawing 1,000 winning postcards in each of three contests. Entry forms are bound into each of the following new books, Superman No. 1, Adventures 424, and Action 584. You may enter any or all three of the separate drawings as many times as you wish. A limit of one prize per winner. Send your name and address. Blah, 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 blah. So, interesting. Very, very interesting. I'm curious. Mike has so many different versions of of Man of Steel. I wonder if he actually has that special edition, if he was able to track one down. The same American Comics ad is uh, in this from last time. There's a house ad for three Legends crossovers. One is uh, Secret Origins starring the Phantom Stranger. If you're interested in hearing about that, check out Ryan Daly's um, Secret Origins podcast over on the Fire and Water Network. Uh, He just wrapped up issue 50, so this is in there so you can listen to the whole thing. Uh, there is on this there's Justice League of America 258, which is the first part of the end of the Justice League of America, the end of the Detroit League, and then there's Firestorm n- number 55, where he's where Cosmic Boy is there and he's fi- fighting Brimstone, which is a part of the Legend. They're all parts of the Legends crossover. There's a hodgepodge ad where you can get phony looking money, um, bugging equipment. You can draw super characters, learn while you sleep, a bunch of comics and stuff, Space Wing Design Kit, Live Ant Lion, World's Most Savage Jaw Snapping Insect, Forms Quicksand Death Pit to Trap and Kill Ant Victims, Startle and Stun Your Friends, and the way it's drawn, it looks like that thing from Star Trek II. <laughs> uh, Charles Atlas is going to get you muscles for seven, seven days, yo. What has Matt Wagner done to the demon? Find out in a four-issue miniseries coming this fall. I have no idea if that was ever any good. Somebody please let me know if it was. There's a There's a house ad for the four-issue Cosmic Boy miniseries, which tied into Legends. I actually have that. I have never read it. I'm collecting all the cos- of all the uh, Legends crossovers just so that I can read the whole thing. There's a monogram model ad with a space shuttle. I actually had this. Oh, from the Young Astronauts. Ooh, it's a sweepstakes. Monogram, Skillcraft, Young Astronaut, Sweepstakes. Win a space trip for four to a space shuttle launch. Uh, I don't think that was going to happen anytime soon in late 1986. Sorry, kids. Uh, You could win a $1,000 savings bond. An Adidas Young Astronauts baseball jacket. I bet you were the coolest kid in school with that. Or your choice of the Young Astronauts space shuttle kit or Pilot 2 Chem Lab set. Ooh, space meth. Enter now. It's easy as 3, 2, 1. Blast off. I had some Young Astronauts stuff we got in the fourth grade when we were kids. Ooh, Karate Kid action figures. Uh, these These were like... They had kick action. So you had the karate, you had karate kid chosen. Looks like a couple of ninjas. You had a attack alley and trainee center, Miyagi, Sato, and Johnny. And I think he had Crease. I think I see Crease as well in one of that. So uh, there's a competition center play set as well from Remco. 
So those are the ads. There was no letter column or not even an introduction column in the issue. It, it just ends uh, It ends with uh, the Lex Luthor thing, and then it has the Cosmic Boy ads. So with that, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back just in a moment. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life, and uh, you, you know what? I, I just, I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way, which it has, but it's, it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about, like season two of Lois and Clark, and the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailitude.com www.supermanhomepage.com or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com You know, there are two things about time that I have noticed when putting this podcast together. One is how time does sort of blur together when you think back in your childhood. Forget how lucky I was growing up in the 80s and having this massive amount of popular culture geared right at me and how so much of it happened simultaneously. Yeah, I definitely went through phases here and there, but there was so much of that just happened. It all happened right on top of one another. That's why I'm sure I would play with both my Star Wars and my G.I. Joe toys or play G.I. Joe and Transformers. The other thing I've started to notice was how gradual a lot of things were. When you watch nostalgia shows, and I'm going back to an old one, like those old I Love the 80s things they showed in the early 2000s on VH1, they'll run through things that happened in a particular year, and you remember that stuff. Although if you remember, you were to do the fact-checking of, quote, being there, you'll realize that something may have come out in 1985, but it didn't really notice it, or you didn't really get into it in, say, 86, or that you didn't phase out of it until you were about a year or two after you thought you did. I brought this up regarding the Transformers in my first episode, and I know I'll bring it up in later episodes concerning G.I. Joe, because my interest in G.I. Joe toys did outlive my interest in comics, although I think that was my about maybe six months. Because looking at the figures that came out in 88, all I got of one of, I got all of maybe one of them. I remember getting a Storm Shadow figure, and other than that, I don't remember getting many others. 1986 for me is one of those years when I was still on the cusp of being really aware of what popular culture actually was. I've actually looked at 1985 as the first year where I became interested in something beyond toys, cartoons, and Star Wars, because that was the first year that my friend John Purcell introduced me to the Mets and the Rangers. Now, I knew the existence of sports. I'd played t-ball. Moreover, I'd known about the existence of of the team that shall not be named, because my mom's side of the family are huge fans of that team. But 1985 was the first year where I really picked a team and started following them. 86, of course, was when I lucked out because right around the time of this issue, the World Series was starting. Again, more on that in an episode of my main show coming out in a couple of weeks. 
But as much as I liked baseball in 1986, I really didn't follow the sport beyond the Mets. And I didn't know any players beyond, say, the important ones who the Mets faced. So at this point, I knew the names of a number of players in the Houston Astros. I knew some of the superstars. I had a decent-sized baseball card collection, but my knowledge of the daily ins and outs of the sports was pretty limited. 87 would be the year for that. Also be the year for music, action movies, a number of other things. And the thing is, I have no idea why. It's not like I had someone walk up to me and bop me on the head with a magic wand or anything. I mean, I will say that I I think it may have had something to do with the, some of the stuff I brought I bought during the spring and summer of 87. For baseball, I think part of it was the sticker book you could fill with stickers of players and all the teams. For music, I think it was that I got a small size boombox to go with a copy of the Top Gun soundtrack that I got for Christmas in 1986. For action movies, well, it was watching Commando at Evan's house. I know it's become a bit cliche these days to use Ben Kenobi's line, you've taken your first step into a larger world to describe discovering something, but in a huge way, that's what a lot of this podcast is about. Time I collected comics in 86 and 87 were definitely a first step. Yes, it's one of that took another three years to fully get going, but even so, I was getting myself into the larger world of comics and popular culture. In fact, I was doing so gradually. These first few episodes have been mostly about random comics I picked up, to be honest. But next episode, I'm going to talk about G.I. Joe and the Transformers number two, which is the continuation of the first story I reviewed in the first episode. But it's really not going to be until February or March that this whole collecting thing starts to kick into gear. At this point, I'm not on the playground talking about the latest issue of a comic. I'm talking about the Mets or I'm playing Top Gun with my friends. I'm still over, all over the place. That's where I will be for quite a while. But thank you for coming along with me. You can leave feedback on the blog, which is popcultureaffidavit.com. You can leave it on the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Or you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Next episode, like I said, is going to be G.I. Joe and the Transformers number two. And that should release sometime in uh, early November. So until then, thanks for listening and take care.